Hi, everybody. Welcome to Glam City. On Glam City, we speak to the hardworking people in Australia's galleries, libraries, archives and museums. I'm Chelsea Barnett and I'm here with Kira Lindsay. Hello, hello. Hello, Kira. <laughs> We're from the Australian Centre for Public History at the University of Technology, Sydney. Um, and today on Glam City, we are remarkably fortunate to be speaking with um, such an esteemed guest. Professor John Maynard uh, is here with us. He's a Waramai Aboriginal man from the Port Stephens region of New South Wales. Professor Maynard is Chair of Indigenous History. He's on the leadership group at the Wallatooka School of Aboriginal Studies and is co-director with Victoria Haskins of the Purai Global Indigenous History Centre, all at the University of Newcastle. I'm losing my breath just saying all of that. Hello, John. How are you? A pleasure, guys, to be here and have a yarn with you. Now, John, one of the reasons that you're here today is that you're about to give the History Council annual lecture. And the title of that is? Uh, Countercurrents, uh, Aboriginal Men and Women at the Heart of Empire. Yeah, and when I read that, I thought, oh, that sounds so fantastic because it's immediately disrupting the idea of Aboriginal people always being on the periphery of our histories. You've put the people right in the heart of empire. Why? Well, I think it's timely. We've got Cook coming up next year, so I think it's um, it's very timely of looking at counter history, if you like, counter currents. And I always like to explore the the missing aspects of Aboriginal history. And I mean, since 1788, you have to say that I've always said that our history of this country is like a giant jigsaw puzzle with many of the pieces missing. And I've always saw my role as putting those pieces of the puzzle back in and examining or searching for the missing, the forgotten, the overlooked and dare I say erased aspects of our history and this one is something that really interests me and over many years of um, certainly looking at transnational connections you know I'd picked up little snippets of material of Aboriginal people moving to Britain and being placed in Britain certainly from Bannalong and Yemawarani all the way through to the 21st century so I'd gathered you know material in regards to that and I thought you know this is a a great um, counter study and uh, uncovering those uh, those memories those stories uh, the things that really drive me and I can imagine that it wouldn't necessarily have been very easy history to piece together because the sources would have been pretty various and fragmentary what did you work with yeah well I I have to say it's 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 more or less a project, um, a working project. I mean, I actually put this in for a laureate, ARC laureate, a large ARC laureate in 2017, and sadly, unsuccessful. But no, I was was disappointed, but I mean, in that year as well, which is, to me as a historian, and you guys as historians, the entire um, round of laureate grants went to science. There were no humanities grants awarded at all, and I think that's a reflection on where we sit in this country today. And as I said, I had connections at that time with the British Museum, a number of King's College. I had Larissa Berent involved. We were looking at doing possibly a documentary as well, going over there and, and searching out. And as I said, I'd collected bits and pieces of material, quite a bit of material over a long period of time which I needed to chase up. So sadly I haven't 
followed that research to its conclusion because it, it hasn't been done. But the thing I'll relate in the uh, the lecture tonight is these snippets and these these stories, which uh, I think will intrigue some people in regards to well, that. Well, I'm intrigued right now, so yeah. why don't you tell us a few of these yeah, stories? Yeah, uh, okay. Um, well, I mean, they're... they're as part of the, the the bigger thing, and there's some of the the well known ones. I mean, Benelong and Yamawarani, which have been discussed. The Aboriginal cricket tour of 1868. Anthony Martin Fernando was another one. Charlie Perkins and Wally MacArthur in the 1950s. Two footballers, one rugby league, one soccer, and of course uh, Burnham Burnham in 1988 with stamping the Aboriginal flag down and claiming for us, which was a reversal on history. But there's these other stories, the little snippets of stories, and I'll I'll tell a few of those now. And I uncovered material. It was in 1918, and there was a newspaper article in Adelaide. It might have been the Adelaide Register, I think, um, and it was titled um, "Intelligent Aborigines," and it noted that there was a, an older Aboriginal woman, Mabel Singh, was living on the Hindmarsh River in under a whirly, um, and it said that as a younger woman, she'd been with uh, Daniel and Elizabeth. Um, Matthews at Maloga Mission. She was one of the Maloga Quartet as a singer but she'd returned back to Adelaide um, and um, married a, a, an Indian hawker um, but the paper went on to say that um, in the late 18th, 19th century rather, um, she accompanied a very wealthy Adelaide family to England and Europe as a domestic servant and as their child carer. And it said that Mabel mixed it with the best of uh, high society in in Europe and even taking uh, an adventure in a hot air balloon in France. So these sorts of stories, I mean, these missing and unknown stories. There was another one in 1895 at the Colliderie's exhibition in London. And the newspaper account said that Queen Victoria was present at this exhibition and there was a major Australian exhibit. So the Queen went down to examine the Australian exhibit. Lo and behold, there's two young blackfellas there <laughs> from Gippsland in Victoria. They were part of the exhibition, a live exhibit. Oh, and no. the Queen uh, got into conversation with the newspaper report, her sable subjects, mm. and uh, they said that these two young Aboriginal men were so intelligent, um, beautifully spoken in their in their English, and um, the Queen invited them out to Windsor Castle for the day. So the, the Again, these missing histories, and it went on to say that the the two young Aboriginal men didn't spend a lot of time at the Colliderie's exhibition in London. They were so much sought after. They were great athletes. They were great musicians. And they were very good with the mittens, boxing gloves. <laughs> so they were very popular, these guys. So again, that's another one of those missing stories that's there of Aboriginal people have gone there from Gippsland for a major exhibition. There's also a connection with with my own family. Um, my my grandfather's stepbrother William Maynard. He went to he went to England in the 1880s. He was sort of adopted by Miss Pierce. A a spinster woman whose property, you know, uh, William Maynard was born on, as as was my grandfather and his brothers and sisters in the 1870s at, at Hinton near Maitland. And Miss Pierce, she adopted William. The, 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 he was actually a, an offspring of her brother, the owner of the major owner of the property, unlike um, my grandfather and his brothers and sisters who were fathered by a labourer on the property. But Miss Pierce in the 1880s took young William on a trip to England. 
and he went over there with and the family still had the ticket that I was on the Serata coming from Gravesend back to Australia on the return trip and it said that um, she acquired a, a beautiful piano for him and he was noted in the family as being a magnificent piano player so the piano was brought back to Australia which was retained in the family until the uh, 1950s and 1960s that's my uh, my father's uh, cousins um, that that side of the family but one of the things that came down as an oral memory of that trip back was that the captain when William appeared on the deck of the SS Serata the captain screamed out get that black bastard off the deck of my ship and Miss Pierce tore strips off the captain don't you dare speak to my son in such a tone so again these are missing aspects of history and those stories and uh, those connections as i said with myself another one um we recently lost uh, william jonas the former um chief justice commissioner um and Bill, I've interviewed a few times over the years, a number of times over the years, a good friend, also a, a Warramai man. And um, Bill told me stories of his grandfather, also William Jonas, Billy Jonas, who was a great horseman, buck jump rider and um, show rider in the sense of there was McConville's, thought McConville's Wild West show. And, and uh, Billy, um, Billy Jonas was a major star attraction in that. And in 1911, they went to uh, Europe and England as Thorpe McConville's, and it was um, King George V's coronation. And Billy Jonas rode in that coronation parade um, at Westminster. Um, so, again, these incredible stories. And Billy Jonas um, married his wife, a Cockney woman over there um, in England. And again, a bit like um, uh, my grandfather's stepbrother, when Billy Jonas married his, his wife over there, there she received uh, this was from an interview with bill um i did some years back she received a letter from her family saying you will remain welcome in our home but never bring that black bastard to our home and that is again the these sort of senses of the story now billy Billy Jonas um, continued to ride in England before coming home. There was the Wild Colonial Boys, mm. sort of like Buffalo Bill's Wild West show that was touring um, England and Europe at the time, and Billy was a star of that. But he and his wife and his brother Jack came back to Australia um, just before World War I, and they both enlisted and went overseas and fought on the Western Front. Mm. Um, Jack um, Jonas was was wounded, and Billy Jonas was... Um, there's a number of things where his courage was recognised and a number of medals awarded, and he was gassed. And then when he returned to Australia, he died at the age of 60, and, I mean, it was, again, the, the repercussions from the gassing that had affected his his breathing so to speak so again that's another one of those little snippets of stories that you know and again on which i'll relate tonight mm. and we continue on even through to today and in recent times and gary foley um certainly um was in england in the 1970s as was i um and uh, a number of aboriginal people you know went over there at that particular point in time and recently in uh 2016 gary's son roxley was in germany and roxley had been invited to cambridge to give a, a lecture on decolonizing australia 
and Roxley flew from Germany to England and was then grabbed by the police and detained and locked up overnight and then put on a plane and deported mm. um, back to Germany. So not couldn't even deliver his lecture. So again, this is a story of today. Um, and But R- Roxley overcome that. He did a Skype lecture to Cambridge <laughs> from Germany so uh, to get his message across. So these are, these are some of the stories. Uh, you're listening to Glam City on 2SCR 107.3. If you want to download this show, head to 2SCR.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Glam City. Right now we're talking with Professor John Maynard and it's a fantastic conversation about his uh, History Council annual lecture this year, which is entitled Cross Currents, Aboriginal People at the Heart of Empire. John, as you're talking, I'm really... Um, aware of how when Aboriginal people have been in England, in a sense there's a level of performance to their presence there but it also is an opportunity to have a different relationship with um, European society than the one that they have been kind of forced to live in within Mm. the Australian context. Is that something that um, you've noticed as a theme and yeah look um uh, uh, my book the aboriginal soccer tribe and i talk about johnny moriarty gordon briscoe um charlie perkins amongst others and wally MacArthur rugby league and that's talking about the 50s and a lot of young aboriginal men went to britain at that particular point and it's a lot of sportsmen you've got boxers you've got soccer players rugby league players and circus performers athletes um musicians, political activists going to Britain. But when you look at the conversations of those those guys when they were young men and certainly when they were coming back and I interviewed Gordon Briscoe and Johnny Moriarty and also Charlie Perkins's, you know, own um, biography and uh, the things that he said about that time, they found greater acceptance in Britain than they ever got here. I mean, those were young men that could go to the hotel. They could go to a cafe or restaurant. They could walk the street with a white woman on their arm. That couldn't happen here. And also the acceptance as far as sport was concerned. Wally MacArthur was over there, recognised then as the greatest rugby league winger in, in the world. Wally's greatest love was running. He was the Australian under-19 champion. He was an absolutely outstanding athlete, but he never got picked for the Commonwealth Games or the Olympic Games, and that's why he turned professional and then went into rugby league, because the barrier was there. As well as that, um, Gordon Briscoe, in conversation, said to me that the migrant communities, when they came back, gave them greater acceptance. And the other codes, rugby league and AFL, they wouldn't weren't even allowed to use the same change room. But, you know, that was a different acceptance with the migrant community. And Charlie Perkins said the same thing. He went to England for a trial with Everton. And then he went on to play for the, the top um, amateur club in England, Bishop Auckland, and was even offered a trial with Manchester United. He was a very good soccer player, Charlie Perkins. Mm. Um, and he said that the acceptance that he gained over there... You know, he hadn't experienced that in Australia. So more freedom and fluidity in the, in the heart of empire. In the heart of the empire. Periphery. That's that's right, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I think that was a very stark awakening for them. And I think it was also an awakening of a, of, of a wider understanding of the world, if you like. I mean, I experienced that. I went, I went to England when I was 19 in the 70s, and I spent most of the 70s over there. Didn't come home till 1980. I worked in pubs and drove an old combi van all around Europe and down into Morocco and everything like that 
but it's a growth. And I mean, you're understanding of what's happening in the world. You're understanding other histories and other cultures and you're recognising that into what's going on back at home and what you'd experienced as a kid here as well. So, so your identity gets to change. Yeah, you, you have a greater appreciation of the world and uh, and have a greater a greater understanding of wider history. John, I'm I'm sitting here listening to you talk about these these stories of Aboriginal people moving in between Australia and and Britain and being astounded at these these stories of people we don't know, stories that we've never heard before. And it's really continuing a theme of your work to uncover stories that have been um, either overlooked or deliberately silenced or erased. And I'm wondering if we can think about the archive as a weapon or as a place of, of violence for Aboriginal stories, for Aboriginal uh, for Aboriginal people. Um, I'm wondering if you might be able to talk to that. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, I, um, I think the archives are very, very important for us and for a long period of time of our history, we weren't aware of the possibilities of what was what was buried in these places and certainly for me over the last 25 years it's been in there ferreting around and I actually love the archives. Mm. There's so much of our voices buried in there and you bring these people back out, men and women um, and our community's voices over a long period of time that have been silenced. So that's where we've got to be, you know, and we've got to move beyond that, well the nation was, we didn't have access to it, but now we do and it's really important. We've got people in those archives now who weren't there, who are there to support you know, our people in, in uncovering you know, just their family history or the community history, let alone the bigger history but I, you know, I certainly encourage all of our mob. And you know, I said about before about the giant jigsaw puzzle. All of us have a part to play in putting some of these pieces back in. But the archive, you have to get over that um, that hurdle of it being the enemy and there being obstacles and hurdles there. The reality is it can answer a lot of questions that we carry and challenge lots of things um, that have been said about us in the past. Um, you know, we've got a major project on the history of the New South Wales Aborigines Protection Welfare Board, and that is critically important, yeah. where we're combining oral memory, because that's critically important and very important for us, and a lot of our old, older people who lived under the Act and under the control of the board you know, they're, they're passing on and we've got to get those memories down. But you combine that with the the stuff that's there recorded in the archive. I think we've got to make it easier for our lot to get into the archives. I mean, and I know the DAA is doing a review at the moment. And I mean, it, it needs to be available greater access because we can't challenge the histories of the past if we can't get access to it. Yeah. So that's critically important. But I said, I mean, for me, myself, you know, I've been the Library of Congress. I've been in the British Library. I mean, these are f- fabulous places to work in and the material you, you can unravel and, and connect back to us. You know, the, the stuff with me with African-American connections. And, I mean, I was at the Schomburg Library in Harlem. I spent, you know, six months there, you know, and, I mean, the connections I found um, with African-American connections, which uh, was a big impact of my work. So Yeah, let's, let's talk about that. Like, that's one of the things that... I find really um, stimulating and exciting about your work is that it's constantly been about um, resituating Aboriginal Australians into broader transnational contexts and mm. finding kind of intellectual, political, but also actual relationships that mm. have been forged over time and place. 
why have you been doing that? And where's it taken you? Why Why I initially started on this journey was, like a lot of our mob, I was just doing family and community history. I was, I was encouraged by my father to undertake a family history on my grandfather, a very prominent early Aboriginal activist. And I was at, at the time out of work and... Um, Despite what I would say that um, I don't have any fond memories of my school years. I left school the day I turned 15 because I couldn't stand the place from the time I walked in the gate to the time I left. I don't have fond memories of there. There was nothing for me to connect with our culture or their history. And there was not a lot of support in those days. I actually think, on reflection, I was shit smarter than the rest of them. <laughs> but they didn't recognise that. Everyone was taught the same then. Yeah. And I was bored shitless. I mean, I'll be blunt. So I switched off in many respects. But um, one thing I did, I just loved to read. Mm. I mean, I consumed a lot of literature, history, and I loved to write. Even from a little kid, I was writing bloody little newspapers and stories. And so... That's the reason my father said, look, I want you to do the old man story um, just for us. And that had no bigger vision than, you know, a nice exercise book and put in some of my grandfather's letters to government, um, newspaper accounts, some of our family photographs and write it up and then present it to my father and uncles, aunties, cousins, extended family members. That was the limit of what I was envisioning to do. And, and now I, you're a professor. Well, <laughs> I, 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 I say that because, you know, it went on from that that I, I went to Wallatooka and it was one of the places I went to just for some further advice where I might go to explore. And Tracy Bunder, a Murray woman, was the director. I've told this story many times and we had the very briefest of conversations and Tracy kidnapped me into a diploma course. I owe her a deep <laughs> grati- uh, debt of gratitude. Then followed a BA, then followed a PhD and here I am 12 books later. The driver for me in the first instance was writing that history for my family but all of the stuff I've been connected with since has been writing for other families I mean putting our history back together I don't write for the academy I mean I don't want my stuff sitting on a on a bloody library shelf in a university gathering dust I want our people to be able to read it enjoy it gain inspiration from it and particularly for our young people to realise they've got her- heroines and heroes of their own um, that they can draw inspiration from. And that they also live in a broader world yeah. outside, you know, the sovereignty boundaries of Australia if you like. And that's what I think I find particularly exciting about your work is to just keep reminding people that they live in this bigger world. So what about Marcus Garvey then? What's that connection? The Marcus Garvey connection my grandfather was a dockworker. And from the early, you know, from you know the turn of the into the twentieth century, he'd been on the docks in Sydney, and with the uh, introduction of the White Australia policy, there was lots of black merchant sailors coming into Sydney, and they immediately identified with Aboriginal wharfies on the docks because they weren't being welcomed onto the streets of white Australia. Mm. There was no red carpet welcome. So they gravitated towards blackfellas on the docks and my grandfather was one of those. And the first um, connection that I established was um, the Coloured Progressive Association, which was an organisation set up in Sydney in 1903 and ran through to after the First World War. Primarily African-Americans, West Indians, Africans, Islanders and Aboriginal dock workers. Then Marcus Garvey, you know, um, in 1916 established the Universal Negro Improvement Association in New York, in Harlem, which went on to be the biggest black movement ever established in the United States. Incredible influence on people like um, Martin Luther King, 
more so Malcolm X, whose mm. father was a member of Garvey's organisation. Nelson Mandela also um, um, highlighted um, the influence of, of Garvey. And an interesting one with Ho Chi Minh, mm. you know, the, the legendary Vietnamese freedom fighter. And Ho Chi Minh was a merchant sailor who was in New York in the 1920s and used to attend Garvey's um, uh, meetings in New York, which were big events. So um, these sort of people were influenced of that. Now, my grandfather and um, Tom Lacey, a good friend of his, there was a chapter of Universal Negro Improvement Association established in Sydney in 1920. And my grandfather, Fred Maynard, and Tom Lacey were members of that organisation. And you can see why there was a connection for Aboriginal activists and the ideology that Garvey was espousing, which was black nationalism, Mm -hmm. and it was pride in your culture, pride in your history. For us here, you can see this connection about pride in culture, pride in history, you know, pride in um, in connection to country, your connection to country. These were the foundation things that were important to us. And his platform was about economic, social, political. Um, These were the the ideology that that, uh, Garvey was espousing. In 1924, you know, you you understand that the Aboriginal activists... um, and Garvey had been jailed in the US um, by uh, the FBI again, which was a, a f- you know, he was put up for mail fraud. But it was you could see that the, the FBI had mobilised to get him and get him out of the country. But then the AAPA started. The Aboriginal actor thought, you know, we'll set up our own organisation with very much a, an Aboriginal focus. But they really did carry the influence of Garvey in everything they did. And my work on that. I overthrew that notion that the early Aboriginal political movements were largely led by white Christians and humanitarian influence. I mean, there had to be a recognition, a complete shift in that, because that wasn't the case with this organisation. They were very much influenced by international black influences, which happened again in the 60s. Yeah. You know, Charlie Perkins and the Freedom Ride, you know, um, with Martin Luther King, and then the um, Black Power movement, yeah. you know, and again, uh, the, the heavy influence of that at that particular point in time. You're listening to Glam City on 2SCR 107.3. To download this show, head to 2SCR or your favourite podcast app. This show is made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with the support of 2SCR. And today, we're really lucky to be talking to Professor John Maynard. Um, John, I'm wondering how you perceive or how you understand Australian history, particularly given the work that you've had to do in overcoming or challenging the silences, challenging the deliberate erasure. Uh, You've just said, you know, you've been working for 20, 25 years and yet, uh, you know, there's still work that needs to be done. Hmm. How do you you feel about Australian history? It's a it's a challenging and forever evolving landscape, isn't it? You know, like um, and I I go through my school years of the fifties and sixties, and when, and I said I didn't have any fond memories of my school years. There was nothing about us in the school curriculum when I come through. Um, the only portrayal we got, we were Stone Age people, we were a dying race, and we couldn't be educated. And the only black fella I remember reading about was Jackie Jackie because he was portrayed as a good black fella because he'd been up there defending Kennedy when he got speared. Um, 
So there was nothing to connect with in regards to that. Of course, the, the 1960s were a time of great social and political change, not just here, but globally. I mean, you yeah, had the civil rights movement, which did influence Charles Perkins and the freedom right here. Um, you had an, an enormously divisive Vietnamese war, and there was lots of protest and movement. And of course, us, we burst onto the scene at that particular point in time as well. So history as well underwent a massive global change. I mean, it was that um, move into people's history and grassroots history, women's history, black history, gay history. I mean, the history from below was rising to the surface. <laughs> so we went through a, an enormous period. And I actually felt, you know, that um, as we moved into the 80s, I mean, I think we were moving towards a, um, a national land rights agenda then and, uh, and potentially a treaty. And certainly history was, Aboriginal history was bursting. Everything was, there was a real positive vibe but that was turned around in the 90s and then then we've gone back the other way I think there may be just a settling of the dust at the moment and I think we're coming into a more I mean, maybe just me, a more positive area where we're pushing. I mean, I think the Uluru Statement. I mean, there's been, I was at the Australian Historical Association just recently in Toowoomba and gave a keynote address there. There was a great sentiment of support and a lot of discussion in regards to that. And I just get this feeling of a changing of the guard again. And a, we're in a movement of change and, you know, time for people. What we need, we're not just pushing our history down people's throats what we want to understand is a balanced history of mm. this country you know I'm not just wanting black history I mean let's let's get real I mean we want a balanced understanding of the past so and give us that opportunity with the people who, who support us to actually play a role there's a lot of good history that's happening yeah. at the moment as you were talking about your grandfather working on the docks as a young man I had this image of someone who looked out to see at the wider world around him, but also looked back into country mm. to the people around him and worked as an activist, was very politically astute and had a really strong sense of his own culture and history. And so I wanted to ask you a personal question about how your work has changed you. Yeah, well, look, I mean, everything I've done in this space, I mean, I never, sadly, never had the opportunity to meet my grandfather. He'd, he died eight years before I was born. But Having read these incredibly um, articulate um, letters that he wrote and eloquent um, correspondence and demands, I mean, he was such a strong individual. So all the stuff that I gain my strength from and derive from certainly comes from him. And um, you're right, I mean, um, but we all have heroes. And again, as I said before, in heroines and people in our, our communities just looked at their past and that's where they should draw their strength from because they're the guiding lights for where we go. And we've got so many of them. And where should we go in the future, John? If you have your your wish, your one wish for what historians should be doing in the future. Yeah, well, look, we've, there's there's great opportunity for collaborative collaborative work, um, and we're not sort of locking the door of non-indigenous support. And I need to encourage our communities in regards to encouraging non-indigenous fellow. We, we're very thin on the ground as Aboriginal historians. You can count them on two hands, in reality, um, and. I would argue there's not an Aboriginal community in the country that, that are not doing 
community history or family history mm. everywhere mm. and we need people to step into that space and in some cases that you know and we encourage non-indigenous research and we've had some great ones I mean you, you look at across the time period and the people like Ann Curtois who was on the Freedom Freedom Ride Peter Reid mm. Heather Goodall's another one well, um, she did a biography on your grandfather didn't she yeah, well yeah. she did the invasion to embassy oh, right. yeah, yeah which is yeah. my grandfather's in yeah. the chapter of that and you work with your wife Victoria Haskins yes and Pure Eye, is, y- is yep, that right yep. yeah. tell us a little bit about that institution Vicky and I established uh, Purai, which is a local uh, Wapakal word meaning World Earth, if you like, Global Indigenous History Centre. But it was it it is in regards to, and I have to say, we didn't get a lot of support from the university at that particular point in time. We did it under our own steam. We established this centre. We built our own website, and it was also of a lot of our connections nationally and internationally establishing a network of people that could work together and collaborate and we've brought over lots of um, dif- different speakers from and spend time at uh, Newcastle with Purai but we're looking to really um, expand that and in, 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 a, in a big way and hopefully maybe get some support from the university and tapping into the connections that we've got and be able to build on some of the project ideas that we've got. Mm. Well, the call is out, <laughs> which is exciting. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Sadly, we must bring Glam City to a close for today. If you would like to hear more about us, just head over to the 2SCR website. That's 2SCR.com. And you can also search for us on your favourite podcast app. This podcast is made by the Australian Centre for Public History at the University of Technology of Sydney with the support of 2SER 107.3. If you want to, you can get in touch with us by emailing Glam City, that's Glam with a capital G-L-A-M, but the rest is glamcity at 2SER.com. It's been an absolutely brilliant conversation today and I hope the listeners have enjoyed it. And there's not much left to do but to thank Professor John Maynard for such a fantastic conversation. Thanks very much, guys. Pleasure. <laughs>